Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time in God's word together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the blessings we've already enjoyed and received through the worship that we have brought today. Lord, as we've sung songs of praise, as we've heard beautiful songs from the choir, and as we have read from your word and prayed together, Lord, all of those things are meant for our good and to build us up and to edify us, Lord. But we know that Supreme among all of those is the Word of God and and the work that the Word does through the preaching of uh, the foolishness of preaching. And Lord, we know that you are able to work through uh, your Word and through your Spirit to change hearts. And I pray that very thing now. Lord, so often we do not live by the law of love and we do not live in the light of the gospel. Even as believers, we tend to Uh, hate our neighbor. Even if it's not vocally said that way, we tend to do it in our actions. And Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts today that we might live in accordance with your word. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're back in our study of the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 13 verses 8 through 14 as we look at the idea of the sacrifice of love. And if you remember since chapter 12, we've been working through the ways that we as Christians live as a sacrifice of praise to God. That as Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, that living like a sacrifice is our act of worship. So everything we do in this world, whether it be the way that we use our gifts and our talents for the good of the church, or whether it be the way that we love others and care for others more than we care about ourselves, or the way even like we saw last time, some of us begrudgingly so, uh, the way that we are obedient to government and even pay our taxes. I'm a little hesitant to say that even now, but the way that we, we, we serve our, as citizens of a country, all of that is a sacrifice that we offer to God. Now, Paul is, is continuing that idea of living as a sacrifice in chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, But 8 through 14 kind of extend that idea and begin to introduce how we're to live with other believers on a day-to-day basis and in some very specific ways. So in chapter 14, we're going to get into ways that we sacrifice our preferences as far as how how we dress or what we eat or how we act in church and things like that. And, and how we sacrifice our freedoms, even as believers in Christ, we're, we're free from the law of sin and death, but we can still live with believers that have uh, uh, prejudices and tendencies that we know are wrong, but we have to find ways to live with other believers in that. So this, this passage that we're going to look at is kind of extending that idea of sacrifice, but Getting, re- getting us ready to deal with those issues within the church that Paul is going to address in chapter 14. And so let's look again at Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. And then I want to give you two points that we're going to look at this morning. Starting in verse 8, God's word says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. 
Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So there are two points that I want you to see today. I want you to see first the law of love and secondly, the law of light. So the law of love and the law of light. So first, starting in verses 8 through 10, we find the law of love. So remember, Paul just told us that we're to live in subjugation to the ruling authorities because those authorities are ministers of God. And he said, he just ended in, the, in verse 7 by telling us that we're to pay to everyone what we owe them. So if there's someone in a position of authority and we owe them respect or honor, then we're to give them that respect or honor. If we're to pay, if, if we're to owe taxes, then we're to give them those taxes that we owe. We're to pay our dues as we're called to as citizens of a country and as believers who are committed to living as a sacrifice of praise to God. But, in, but we find in verse 8 that Paul extends this principle of paying what we owe to everyone. Notice he says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. So in other words, Christians are to live, a believer is to live as uh, in, in settled relationships with other people. We're not to live with anything that is unsettled between us and another person. Now this obviously applies to money, that we're not to owe anyone a debt that goes unpaid. Now that's not to say, as many have interpreted this to say, that you cannot have a debt or have a mortgage or a loan or a credit card bill or whatever. But the idea is that you settle up. When it's time to pay, you pay people what they are owed. You give them the money that you have pledged to give them. But just as we saw with the, the passage in, in verse 7, that this doesn't just apply to, apply to money. It applies to everything related to our relationships with other people. It applies to any unsettled division that might exist between us and another person. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 through 26, if you have anything between you and your brother, then you're to drop whatever you're doing. In fact, Jesus even says, if you're in the temple and you're about to give a sacrifice and you find that you have aught with your brother over something, then you're to drop that sacrifice and go and seek to be reconciled to your brother. Just imagine that, that your reconciliation with a brother or sister in Christ or a neighbor is more important than the sacrifice you might offer in the temple. Do you get that? That our relationships and the reconciliation that we have between other people is the most important priority that we have as a believer. 
Or as Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You see, Christians should be a forgiving and a reconciling people. Now, this is not some naive view of a perfect utopia where nobody ever has any disagreement or strife. We live in a broken world. We live in a Baptist church, so there are going to be disagreements, right? But uh, the Christians are going to argue. We're going to disagree. If we decided to paint this church... Half of you would want to paint it white and the other half would want to paint it black. It just that's the way it's going to go. Or really, probably more likely, we'd have 60 different opinions on what we were to paint this church. We're going to disagree on things. Church members will have sour dealings with other church members. It's just going to happen because we're in a world where things don't always work out the way we think they should. Someone is going to likely misspeak to his brother or sister in Christ and they're going to take it wrong and it's going to offend them. All of these things are just part of life. But what makes Christians different is not that we never have any grudges or not that we're never offended, but that we reconcile when we are offended, that we forgive and that we seek reconciliation. We forgive our offender and we love Our neighbor. And that's exactly what Paul says in the rest of verse 8. He says, We're not to owe anyone anything except for love. Now, did you catch what he says there? Don't miss this. Because the way we tend to think about love is as a gift that we choose to give, right? I, I reserve my love for just those that deserve it, or I hold my love close. But what does Paul say here? He says, don't owe anybody anything except for love. For the Christian, love is a debt that we owe. As a believer, you are supposed to love others. And here's why. Because you have been loved unconditionally by a God that did not owe you anything. And that God who did not owe you anything gave of his best, that being his only son, that you might be reconciled to him. So how dare you think that you don't have to be reconciled to other people? We owe other people our love, our unconditional love, because we have been loved unconditionally. And... Better than that, it's not just something that we owe, but it's something that we've been enabled to do. So God has given us the power to love through the presence of His Spirit in our hearts. It's almost something that if you really are a believer, you can't help but do. And so we're called to love because God has loved us first and because He has enabled us to love. And so we should love as God loves. And this supernatural love is the key to fulfilling the requirement of the law. So Paul says that the the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Understand, first, that obedience is always primarily a matter of the heart. 
Remember, Isaiah, I mean, uh, Israel was condemned for heartless obedience. So Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13 says, They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So true obedience to the law flows out of a heart that is set on love for God and love for neighbor. And this makes total sense too, and it's actually what Paul explains in verse 9. So if you love your neighbor, if you really care about your neighbor, are you going to steal his wife? No. Are you going to murder him? No, not if you love him. Are you going to covet what he has? No. And so Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, this isn't the idea. and Don't get Paul wrong here. He's not saying that the law is reduced down to love. In, other, in the idea that we took all those commandments and we reduced it just down to one. That if you love your neighbor, then you fulfilled the law. And, and I say that because what we'll tend to do is say, well, I have good feelings for my neighbor. neighbor. I like my neighbor. I wouldn't save him as a, if his house was on fire. But I, I love my neighbor. <laughs> and so we reduce it down to good feelings. And we think because we have good feelings toward people, then therefore we've loved them and therefore we've fulfilled the law. That's not what Paul is talking about. What he's saying is our obedience is motivated by a heart that has been changed by God to love other people. And because of that, when we love other people as God loves them, we fulfill the law. So we don't run around worrying, have I obeyed the law today? No, we run around being concerned that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And in doing that, we fulfill the law. And that leads me to my second point, which is the law of light in verses 11 through 14. In these verses, Paul gives us another motivation for seeking the good of others and loving our neighbor. We should pursue right relationships with other people because, as Paul says it, The day is at hand. Now, in saying this, Paul means two things. First of all, anyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ has been brought out of darkness of sin and received the light of the Spirit. As he said back in Romans chapter 6, we've died to sin, so we don't want to go back to it. So, I, you may not know this about me, and some of y'all have noticed over the past two years, I've, I've changed from wearing glasses to wearing contacts when I can, when I can stand to wear contacts. Um, but I, I have really bad eyesight, or not really bad, but not great. And I, I, if I don't have my contacts in or my glasses on, I can't see very much further than maybe 10 yards. In fact, just to show you how bad it is, if I don't have my glasses on and I wake up in the, uh, uh, in the night or I get up in the morning and go to find them. I usually have to get Leah to help me find them because I can't see them on the nightstand next to me. I kind of fumble around till I find them. And if I can't uh, find them, then I have to get Leah to come come find them for me. So when I was, I, I got my first pair of glasses when I was eight years old. And I remember walking out of the eye doctor's office with those glasses on and realizing that those big green blobs that were that I had called trees actually had limbs and leaves on them. And I, I just couldn't stop looking at all the stuff that I could see clearly. I could see squirrels and trees. I could see birds flying over my head. I could make things out. And since that day, I have not wanted to one day to go back to not wearing glasses or wearing contacts anymore. In a similar way, 
Now that we come, have come into the light of the gospel, why would we want to go back to the darkness of our former lives? We've been changed. And so to go back is to be like taking your glasses off. You no longer see clearly. You no longer understand clearly. It'd be like, like we had before everybody got here today. The power was off. It would be like having no lights. And, and after you've had lights, why would you want to be without light again? And Paul also means that the light of Jesus Christ points forward to his second coming. As he says in verse 11, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. In other, in other words, and this should be one of the primary motivations for our faithful life in Christ. Every hour of every day that we live on this earth brings us closer and closer to the final day when Christ will return and judge the world and bring about our final salvation in the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. Every hour that we wait is a day, an hour closer to the day when he will return. And if that's true, and I know that it is, if that's true, then we don't have the time to fumble around in disobedience. We don't have the time to waste on living for our most basic desires, our most carnal desires. We need to live expectantly, waiting on the day that he will return. And that expectant living has a certain look to it. So Paul tells us in verse 13 that we should walk properly. And he gives us two examples of how of what walking or three examples, I'm sorry, of what walking improperly or walking in the way of darkness, what that looks like. First of all, he says that we should not be given to the extreme abuses of this world. And he gives as my translation says, orgies and drunkenness is two examples of extreme abuses in this world. One being the extreme pursuit of sexual desire and the other being an extreme pursuit of, uh, uh, of pleasure, of, of substance. And just think of, and we might think, well, this is, this is old Roman stuff or this is old Greek stuff. This kind of stuff doesn't really happen today. But we know for a fact Drunkenness and revelry happens today. And you may not know it or not, but things like the other thing that are mentioned happen today too. There are things that happen, extreme, uh, terrible things that even upstanding citizens do in secret that I can't even mention from this pulpit. And those things are accepted and applauded as an expression of individual freedom and autonomy, but they are a way of darkness. He also says that we should not give, give in to our base desires like sexual immorality and sensuality. Our society today believes that sexual desire is the highest good. It is what should define you. It is how what you should base your identity on. But Paul says that and our society also believes that to repress one's inmost desire is evil. But yet Paul says that the way of light resists those desires for the greater good of obedience to God. And finally, we see that we should resist quarreling and jealousy. Now, our society is full of relational strife and division. 
We encourage people to stand up for their rights, regardless of who else it affects. We applaud the man who doesn't back down. We stand behind the woman who lashes out at those who scoff because she's, quote, living her best life. We enjoy it when a parent gets nasty with a ref or with other fans. Yet the way of light overcomes quarreling and jealousy. It doesn't encourage strife and division. It promotes forgiveness and reconciliation. So this really circles back to what I said at the beginning, that we should live in reconciliation, that we should pursue that as believers. We should pursue love and unity and reconciliation as a a way of sacrificing uh, or giving of the sacrifice of love. But there are two questions that I have for you as believers here at Antioch West that I hope will help us to get at what the difference between quarreling and jealousy and forgiveness and reconciliation are. First of all, I want to ask, do you have a chip on your shoulder? Do you live and walk around looking for an opportunity to get aggravated or angry or frustrated with people? Some people do. It seems as though they do, especially church people. They look for a reason to get angry with another church member. They look for a reason to get frustrated with the pastor or a deacon. And they will use any and every opportunity. Something someone said, something someone didn't say, something someone did or didn't do. They will use it as an opportunity to, to, as an excuse either not to come to church anymore or not to participate or back down from serving in some way. And uh, to quite honestly, it is one of the hardest challenges of being a pastor. I don't know if Brother uh, Watson will agree, but I have found it to be one of the hardest challenges of being a pastor. I can put, to, I can put a sermon together with my eyes closed. It, it is no big deal for me to get up here and to preach. I've done it long enough that I don't get nervous. I, I can wing it most of the time and do okay. I'm not worried about my preaching ministry at a church. The thing I worry most about is whether I've offended the wrong person, quite honestly. That is my biggest concern, is whether I didn't speak to someone when I should have, or whether I did speak and I said the wrong thing, or whether I didn't visit in time, or whether I did visit too soon, or or something like that. Because I have had real instances where people have gotten offended over the smallest of things. Let me give you an example. At another church, uh, I did like I typically do where I go out at the back and I, I shake everybody's hands as they come through. And y'all know, especially at a church this size with just one escape route, um, it's, like, it's like a machine gun coming out of there, right? And I can't always get to everybody. Well, one Sunday, I was uh, talking to a, a group of folks and a, a man came by and he, uh, he passed by us as we were talking. I didn't see that man again for another two months. And I did, and I heard through the grapevine that he was upset with me because I didn't speak to him at church. And finally, he he ended up having a medical issue, and I went to visit him in the hospital. And we, I got to deal with that particular issue. And I said, you know, I, I'm sorry I didn't speak to you, but you know, I don't know if you've ever seen me on a Sunday, but I'm kind of busy. <laughs> and, but the, but people 
tend to live with a chip on their shoulder. And it's bothered me in my time in ministry because I want you to think about it from this perspective. Let's say you, the Lord comes back and he calls us all to the white throne judgment. And he calls you to stand before the throne and give an account for the way that you lived. And he, see, he says, you know, I, I didn't see you much in church, brother so-and-so. Why didn't you come to church like I've called you to in Hebrews chapter 10, where I tell you not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together? How do you think that excuse is going to work when you tell him, well, you know, that preacher, he didn't speak to me enough. So I, I just really got offended and I decided I wouldn't come to church anymore. You think that's going to work very well with your Lord and Savior where you allow a relationship with someone else to be the reason that you don't come together with your brothers and sisters in Christ and worship the risen Savior? You think that's going to work? No, it's not going to work. That deacon, he didn't speak to me or he didn't do the thing that I thought he should do. So I didn't come to back to church anymore. Yeah, I proved him wrong. Well, you know what you proved too? You don't love the Lord like you say you do. What the relationships that we have together should not be an excuse for how we worship the Lord. And if they are, then you need to reconcile with your brother and sister and get right so that you can worship as you're called to. Amen. And walking around with a chip on your shoulder is not a way to live in faithfulness and reconciliation with your brother and sister. Waiting on someone to say something so that you feel like you finally have that excuse that you don't have to go to that church anymore doesn't show a life of faith. Secondly, the second question I want to ask is along those lines, do you sympathize with those who live a grumbling and jealous life or do you encourage them to reconcile? So often, good, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, we can encourage someone in their sin of grumbling and jealousy rather than encouraging them in a, a life of forgiveness and reconciliation. We can give them a little too much of an ear. Does that make sense? We can listen to them and agree with them and affirm them in their strife and jealousy rather than pointing them to the way of reconciliation. We, as brothers and sisters in Christ, ought to hold each other accountable to this calling to be reconciled. When someone brings you a complaint, I'm not saying that you shouldn't hear it, but what I am saying is that you should point them in the way of a life of forgiveness and reconciliation. You should point them to a faithfulness that goes beyond that offense to living in forgiveness and love and reconciliation with their brother and sister in Christ. Don't give an ear to something that you know is sin. Encourage them to walk in faithfulness and love. So Paul ends this passage in verse 14 with a guiding practice for those who would walk in the way of love and light. He says, we are to put on Christ and to make no provision for the flesh. So notice that this command deals with something that we're to put on and something that we're to take off or to avoid. We're to put on Christ. 
which is to say that we're to live in the light of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. As he said, as Paul says back in uh, chapter eight, that we're to live by the spirit and we're to take off or to make no provision for the flesh. So we're to avoid those things that would encourage our fleshly desires. We don't go where those things are done. We don't listen to people who would encourage us to do them. And we don't watch or listen or read that which would encourage it either. So as we leave this place, may we put on Christ and may we walk in the way of love and life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that we would be the type of people that would reconcile that would love our neighbors as we're called to, that would seek reconciliation and forgiveness above uh, jealousy and strife, and that we would uh, be examples of lives that have been changed by the word of Christ and by the presence of your spirit, by the way that we treat others in this world. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.